I want to thank you. It's so nice to meet you. And, and I'm so glad that you're here. You are a New York Times bestselling author with several of your books um, hitting that list. You have two very informative TED Talks, one you did pre-pandemic and another since you've, we've been in the pandemic. I've seen that you've been on PBS, NewsHour, NPR, CNN, and then recently with Live with Kelly and Ryan, right? And then you've got plenty of accolades for your work. And I'm really proud to have you join us today, the Elisa Genova. Thank you so much, Alexis. This is a pleasure. <laughs> well, again, I thank you for taking the time out to join us. Um, I want to start with my pure disappointing appointment from learning about your writings just now at this late date. Um, I had to push that aside. So I'm going to run full steam into your collection. I mean, you've got plenty of books out there, but I'm going to focus today on Still Alice and a little bit about Remember. Um, We're covering Still Alice and Remember in two of our episodes. The first one is releasing to release today. Um, Cool. So today I'm going to, again, I'm going to ask you a few questions about both books and then talk about what it means to be an empathy warrior um, and what we can do to be more empathetic. But first, what I've read is that all of your books are about neurological disorders. What made you combine uh, neuroscience with writing? How did you get there? It was not a planned career. So my background's in neuroscience. That's what I went to school for. That's what Uh I'm educated in. I did not plan to become a writer. So I became a writer because my grandmother had Alzheimer's. And Mm -hmm. as the neuroscientist in my big Italian family, I wasn't responsible for caregiving. I had lots of aunts and uncles and my parents who were really doing that heavy lifting. But I really loved my grandmother. And I figured, well, I'll learn everything I can about Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's and pass that education on to my family. And maybe it would help us be better caregivers. And I learned a lot, but I found that everything was written from the perspective of an outsider looking in. So everything was like very clinical and homework feeling and heavy. And it was written by a scientist or a clinician or a caregiver or a social worker. And so the information was helpful, but it still left me feeling a little bit lost. And what was missing was empathy. I didn't have the perspective of the person with it. I didn't understand what it felt like to be my grandmother. I had a lot of sympathy for her. So I felt so bad for her and I felt so bad for us. And I felt scared and upset and frustrated and powerless, but I didn't know how to feel with her. Mm -hmm. And that's the distinction between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is feeling for someone and it keeps you emotionally detached. Like it's like, oh, there's you over there. I feel so bad for you, but you're different from me. So I'm safe over here. Empathy collapses that distance. It's like, okay, I'll be with you in that. I get it. I feel what you feel. I didn't know how to do that when my grandmother had Alzheimer's, but I knew that stories are the place where you can develop that. Like story Mm -hmm. is the place where you can walk in someone else's shoes and feel the human experience of someone else who might be very different from you in lots of ways, but that humanity, right? That human experience is there and I can connect with you there at that level. So I thought, well, Well, a book like that didn't exist when my grandmother had Alzheimer's. There wasn't a novel about a person with Alzheimer's told from the perspective of the person with it. And so I thought, well, maybe someday I'll write that story. (laughs) Um, And I figured I'd do it when I was retired and there was no risk. And it would just sort of be this hobby almost. But 
then um, I, I ended I got divorced and I was an unemployed, divorced, single mom all of a sudden in my mid thirties. And my whole world just seemed to sort of cave in on itself. Mm. And I started asking some really big questions like, what do I want to do now? And if I could do anything I wanted and I didn't have to care about what anybody thought, <laughs> what would I do? Yeah. And the answer that just wouldn't let go of me was you want to write that book. So it was kind of a weird, unreasonable, scary decision because I had wow. never written anything before. Um, and that was the beginning of Still Alice. And that was my first book. Still Alice was my first book. And then yeah. that gave me permission to keep going. And what I what I figured out along the way, especially doing the research and talking to people who have Alzheimer's and trying to get from them who are the real experts, the people who live with these diseases and disorders. And what does it feel like? Yeah. Um, I recognize that like, there's this weird special kind of taboo for anything from the neck up. So if you've got mental illness, if you've got a neurodegenerative disease, if you've got bipolar disorder, autism, ALS, people get really afraid really fast. And they just yeah. look, they just look away yeah. because nobody knows how to feel what's going on with you. Yeah. And so I thought, well, here's the special thing I can do. Like I can take my background in neuroscience, which I love my understanding of the brain and combine it with story to help people who are ignored, feared, and misunderstood be seen and heard again. Mm. That's what I do. That sounds so passionate. Uh, and I actually have a little, a few questions, well, a question regarding that stigma. But before I get to that, as we talk about Still Alice, in the book, all the children seem to have a different response to Alice's diagnosis. And I think that's reasonable, right? But would you say they were having an empathetic or a sympathetic reaction? And did that change throughout the book? That's a really great question. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that. Yeah, I think that I wanted to portray very different reactions to Alice's Alzheimer's because that's what happens in the real world. And I saw that in my own family. My Nana had nine kids and everyone loved her. And there were so many different opinions as to what the best thing to do for mom was. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, everybody was coming from a place of love, but everybody was in their own stage of grief. Yeah. So like someone was in denial and another person was in anger and another in bargaining and another in acceptance. So you get them all in the same room. And how are you going to get agreement when everyone's in a totally different emotional place? Yeah. So I wanted to show that. And I saw that a lot in the research too. Um, I think that Lydia was my character that I wanted to show, like, this is how you do it, people. Like, mm -hmm. this is how you meet someone where they are. You join people with Alzheimer's in their reality. And that's where you can be in a place of empathy. I think that um, that her other two kids, Anna and Tom, had a harder time for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and they they weren't quite able to do that. They had, you know, their own fears and their own agenda and um, yeah. weren't as able to drop in. And then her husband, John, yeah. uh, was in denial the longest. He was just like, the this, longest. Cannot, yes. this cannot be happening. If I just don't look at this, maybe it's not real. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I saw that a lot. And I'm sure people experience that, right? Just that denial that he felt it was so strong. I, I um, oh, I felt for him because because he got to a point where he was really angry. I felt too um, within the book because he was really denying it. There, there had to be another reason for what was happening. Another way out of this, there has to be a treatment. There has to be a cure. And he kept looking yeah. and, you know, he and, and Alice both lived very, they're both um, in academia. They're both professors. Yeah. And so they live very cerebral lives. Yeah. So their identity and their worth is placed in being able to think yeah. and remember. Yeah. 
And so what happens if that falls away? It's like, well, who are you now? Yeah. And how do you matter? And I think that they also, I think that their marriage was one of, you know, they were sort of in parallel play. Like he's doing his thing. She's doing her thing. And they were both content, content to do that, but they weren't really connected. Right. There wasn't a lot of intimacy there at that point in the relationship. And now this crisis hits and Alice is asking for an intimacy that doesn't feel familiar to John. Like he's like, I don't know how to, uh, he just wasn't really available to her in the way she needed. And that's what happens, right? We're all living our lives and, and stuff happens probably when we're not ready for it. Exactly. So this marriage wasn't ready for, for Alzheimer's. Unfortunately, he had a hard time. Yeah. We can't plan um, the things that happen in our lives like that. Sicknesses. Yeah. Um, And still Alice, at one point she says she'd rather have cancer. So she doesn't feel the stigma associated with Alzheimer's. I, I can appreciate that person wants to have their mind to have a physical illness. I get, there's really a difference, but that was back in 2008. Do you think there's still a stigma around Alzheimer's or do you think that with your work and work with uh, Maria Shriver, that that's made a difference? Yeah. I'd like to think that we've come a long way. And mm. I think still Alice has played a part. I know Maria Shriver and the women's Alzheimer's movement has played a part. There've been more movies that have come out since. Um, I think that we're dragging it out of the closet and, and showing it to people, right? This isn't just a disease of the dying elderly that you can ignore. This is real people living real lives with this. Um, So yeah, I think, you know, cancer 50 years ago was people didn't even say the word. Right. They called it the big C. They called it the big C. Yeah. They whisper it, right? She's got the big C. So you know, think, you know, we've come so far with cancer, right? Like I I know so many friends who've battled it and, you know, we immediately jump in like, okay, what can we do? And yeah, we're you know, that is on Facebook now. with it now, right? It's like, as soon as you have it, it's like, tell everyone so we can be your community. Yeah. With Alzheimer's, it's been like, tell no one because we'll be embarrassed <clears throat> and all that secrecy breeds shame. And so, you know, the disease is hard enough without having to feel alone in it, right? Loneliness right. is awful. So I think that it's getting better. I still think there's this taboo that goes on with anything going on from the neck up. And so, you know, part of my work out there in the world is trying to get people to understand that brain health is is like it's like the rest of you. Right. We we're all we're OK talking about heart health and our lady parts. But yeah. people don't think that they can talk about brain health or that they can ask their doctors questions about their brains. So I want I want part of my mission is to get people feeling comfortable feeling like they have influence over their brain health and that people who have illnesses in their brain, it's like, well, you know, people have diabetes or people have heart disease. And like, this is another part of the body that can have some issues and that's okay. Like you're still a human being and yeah, you're worthy exactly. of my, my love and attention and belonging. Oh, well, that's yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, there's a woman on Instagram who chronicles her experience as the, daughter caregiver of her mom who has dementia and it's very moving to watch her page and she's saying she has to adapt her life to her mom's world so that everything so her mom can keep going and I just think it's so um, interesting um, the way she talks about it so just like you say it's on Facebook it's on Instagram there is more 
um, freedom with it to talk about it. And I think that's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful thing. You mentioned something, but I'm going to come back to it because I want to know about the title. Can you explain the title? Because she was she really still Alice at the end of the book? So. Right. You can argue yes and no. I don't think it's, you know, all or nothing there. But I think here's where it came from. When I was trying to figure out a title for the book, I went through the hundreds of email exchanges I had with people living with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So I got to know 27 people living with early stage or early onset Alzheimer's who were still able to communicate what it feels like to have it. And I went through hundreds and hundreds of pages of email exchanges and I don't know if it was absolute, but it felt like in every single email from them to me, the word still was in there. It was right. I, I still, I'm still here. I still love to garden, go to work, uh, vacation, see my grandkids. I still love to all of the things that people love to do. I still matter. I still want to be heard. I still want to be listened to. Um, And I thought, Ooh, that's, that's, what I mean. Like, you know, you're still worthy of love and be belonging. Oh, I don't care if you can't remember what I said five minutes ago. Yeah. So what? Right. I'll tell you again. Or it, it, you know, I might forget what you told me in this conversation, <laughs> right? In a month. Like let's mm-hmm. let me say them like I can't remember all of it. Exactly. That's normal. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that this, you know, half hour I'm spending with you wasn't worth it, wasn't wonderful, wasn't meaningful, right? So we can spend time with each other and it's meaningful regardless of whether we remember it or not. So in that sense, she's still Alice. But the Alice that she, you know, the the ego part of us, right? The part that's like, well, I am a professor and I am, you know, intelligent and I am all of those things. She couldn't be those anymore. So that was, in that way, she wasn't still Alice. but in the ways that are essential to our humanity, I mm. believe that I believe that a person is still there. And that and it, was the message that every person I've come to know with Alzheimer's tells me, even my friends now who are you know, advancing into later stages, it's like lost so much of what they used to be capable of so much of their, you know, authority and swagger in the world. Mm. And yet still here, still worthy. Yeah. Oh, that's really touching. I love the way you explain that. And yeah, you're you are still there. And it takes me back right back to that book. Alice, the end. I really love the end when John said you and I wrote this. And I just thought that was the most it's like John was coming around. It was she felt proud like this. I am still here. So I really love that. I love how you described that. I think that was very beautiful. After reading Still Alice, um, I wanted to understand memories, how the memory works. And whenever I think of memories, the first thing that comes to my mind is the Disney Pixar film Inside Out. Um, I love that movie. So I watched it. And, you know, they talk about the long term memory and they call the core memories. And I'm like, well, how does that relate? So I start searching the Internet and then I found that you completed the book. Remember, Um, and I found that you published it just last year. It's a year this month. Right. So that's wonderful. You published Still Alice in 2007, right out of the trunk of your car selling books. I love it. Why did you decide to write Remember and when did you start it? 
So I, I started writing, remember, probably, I don't know, three years ago, mm-hmm. um, maybe two or three years ago. I wrote it because so I've been since the publication of Still Alice, I've been traveling the world, speaking to people, using that book as a vehicle for conversation about Alzheimer's, the scary subject that you know, no one really wants to talk about, but okay, we're going to drag it out of the closet here. We're going to talk about it in a way. And here's, I'll use still Alice as sort of the platform for that. So we'll begin the conversation there. And I found that after every talk I've ever given about Alzheimer's, people wait for me in the book signing line, or they, they corner me in the ladies room. (laughs) And they ask me all these questions questions about their memory. And they say, well, I'm, you know, I walk into a room and I don't know why I'm in there or I'll, I'll have, I'll need to pick up milk at the grocery store. And I go to the grocery store and I buy a bunch of things. I come home and I forgot the milk. Yeah. Uh, I'm always forgetting people's names or my friend recommends a TV show on Netflix. And then I sit down on the couch that night to watch the show. And I can't for the life of me, remember what the name of the show is. Um, so there's all these examples and people get very scared. They think, yeah. Oh no. Um, there's a lot of judgment and shame and blame and fear and anxiety of like, oh no, this means I'm going to get Alzheimer's or maybe I already have it. Right. Depending on the person's age. And in all of those examples I just gave, those are all normal outcomes of a normal brain. Like our brains, there's this like misconception and false belief out there that our human brains are supposed to be perfect with respect to memory. And they're just not, there's a lot of design flaws in there and certain kinds of things that we ask of it. It's just, it's going to fail a lot of the time. Um, we, if we don't supply the right kinds of information, we will walk into a room and wonder why am I in there? And that's normal. So I thought, so I'd help these folks one at a time, right? So I'd explain it in the ladies room or the book signing line. The person would feel so relieved, so happy. We'd usually hug like, okay, I've just changed this person's life because now she's not going to freak out every day anymore. And I thought I should really stop doing this one person at a time and like write it down and give it to to everybody. So that was the decision there. That was wonderful. I think you did a really good job of presenting our complex brains in a simplified way to a layperson. And I often feel myself that I'm memory challenged. I probably would have been one of those people seeing you in a corner and you in the bathroom. But remember, if I what happens if I just walk away and I don't remember or somebody asked me about their childhood? Like I have a daughter. What if she asked me about her childhood and I don't remember? And I just love, I got the comfort that you were seeking to give when you wrote that book because our imperfect brains are not designed to remember every piece of information we received that really like held me close and made me feel better about my um, my memory issues. And it um, kind of helps me also pay attention to what could be a real memory issue. So I can I can see the difference. And so I really love how you you addressed it and um, remember. I keep calling remember memory. Yeah, that was the original title. So that's, you're not alone. Um, Thank you. That's so perfect. I'm so happy to hear that. And like exactly what you just said too. It's like, we want people to be mindful of what could be a symptom of dementia. And it doesn't necessarily have to be Alzheimer's, by the way, because a B12 deficiency, like just a vitamin deficiency can cause Mm. dementia. And that's, we can solve that very easily. Um, It can be like, if you have really bad, you know, sleep habits that can cause symptoms of dementia. So it might not be Alzheimer's, but we want you to be mindful of that stuff. 
But if you're walking around thinking everything I forget is a symptom of Alzheimer's, then no wonder you got to put your head in the sand and think, ah, la, 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 la. Like, I'm not going to, I can't deal with any of this. But if you realize like, oh, here are all the things that are totally normal. Yeah. And I know how to either just relax and don't worry about it. Or I know what to do about, okay, if I want to be better at remembering where I put my cell phone. Right. Um, I actually have to pay attention for a split attention. second to where I put it yeah. because I can't yeah. form a memory of things I don't pay attention to. So it's like, yeah. oh, if I can just slow down and like, oh, I'll start to remember my phone more. Um, that's normal. And then the things that aren't normal, now we know the distinction and we can be like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, well, wait a minute. I might want to talk to my my family doctor yeah. about that. Um, yeah. yeah. But, you yeah. know, for 99% of us, it's normal people. It's okay. <laughs> I love it. I tell you, it was very comforting. I I couldn't put the book down because it was such a comfort to me in knowing that. So why don't we talk about what it means to be an empathy warrior? Um, I have a hard time with W's. Where did you um, come up with that phrase? And are there any specific projects that you're working on in that empathy warrior endeavor? Thank you. I don't remember exactly where when the term came i have a feeling it came from glennon doyle's love warrior book back in the day i think that was her first book okay um before the juggernaut that is untamed um (laughs) there was love warrior and i thought um well what what i do and and we talked about this at the beginning of our conversation is i'm writing stories that are on the surface about a neurological condition, Mm -hmm. but they're really about our shared human condition. And they're about people who really are marginalized and shunned um, and and excluded from community because of mental illness or neurological disease. And so through story, I can help people find their way to empathy. Mm. So I found that empathy is the path to bringing people back into community, to humanizing, to demystifying, to destigmatizing. And so through my writing, I feel I'm an empathy warrior through my speaking, right? Talking to you, all of the advocacy work that I do, all of the speaking that I do. I spoke this morning to a group um, for the Alzheimer's Society of British Columbia about empathy and telling our stories and listening, looking for the stories. Like this is how we're going to, we're going to change the world, we're going to change our behavior, not by knowing more, not by intellectually knowing more. We're going to change by feeling more Mm. because that's what changes us. Yeah. Like if I know something, that's fine. I can ignore that. But if I feel something, I'm going to be motivated to do something. I'm going to be motivated to act differently. So that's my mission. That is my mission is really to help people feel empathy towards others who are dealing with mental illness and neurological conditions. And it, you know, it goes beyond that too. I'd love yeah. people to feel, feel empathy for everyone for every reason, but course, my little, my little niche, my little contribution to the world here has to do with the brain. Well, you really did a good job of that in um, still Alice. I mean, I was so connected to, to Alice. I, I felt for her, I really felt for her. And I was, I was happy with Lydia and how their relationship transformed. I thought that was amazing how we could see Lydia was such an empathetic person and she really embraced her mom and they like became really best friends <laughs> through that. She said, yeah, the actor, I want to be next to the actor. I know. I, I thought recognize that was her. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Really and their touching. relationship didn't start that way, right? There was a lot of, you know, Alice wanted her to go to college and wanted her to live a life like she had lived and sort of was a little bit arrogant and I know the way. This is yeah. how you're supposed to live. Yeah. And Lydia was choosing something different. And so they were at odds and yeah. And then over through the course of the illness. So that was one of the things I wanted to show, which is I saw this many times. It's you know, the disease often brings people together or tears them apart. Mm. And so a lot of people can't imagine that they think, oh, you've got this terminal diagnosis. There's no cure. They might expect you to live the tragedy of your diagnosis 24 seven. And people don't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're we are resilient and we adapt and we I mean, a lot of us, I guess a lot, the people that I was, I was lucky enough to come to know and doing the research, these were people who had the resilience to raise their hand and say, mm. Hey, I'm going through something really horrible, but I've got enough resilience here to talk to you and share and try to help you. I mean, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But so this is true of a lot of people though. It's like, okay, I, I'm still here. I'm still um, here. So, you know, how can I live and and love as best I can with all that I still am while I'm here. Yeah. And and so we we see people come together in some ways that like people drop their grudges. They can forgive people sort of get really yeah. clear as to, OK, what's really important. I'm going to mm-hmm. drop all the nonsense and yeah. focus on this is the stuff that matters. And so like I met a guy who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in his late 40s. Mm-hmm. And he had twin daughters um, wow, in, in high school still. Yeah. And he had been working 70 hours a week traveling. He was never home. He didn't know his daughters. Mm. And he he had this, hor- you know, he has Alzheimer's, which is horrific. And he wouldn't wish it on anyone. And he said, and yet not to Pollyanna this and not to rose colored glasses. This, He's like, he said, there are gifts that can come with this if you choose mm-hmm. to open them. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So the Lydia Alice relationship was a gift that came out of this Alzheimer's that they would not have come together without that. I I agree. I totally agree. Oh, my goodness. I just love the beauty of how that relationship formed and developed. So how would you um, how can we be more empathetic in our dealings with family members or those we encounter with dementia or form of it? Yeah. So again, I always invite people to look for the stories. So if you're dealing with Alzheimer's, you know, you can watch a movie like Still Alice or a number of others that are out there about this, this disease. There's a show on TV called This Is Us that has a character with Alzheimer's. Um, Look for the stories that's going to help you develop empathy. Start telling yours as well if you are if you're living this um, because you're going to help other people as well. Um, I talked a little bit about meeting people where they are in their reality. So a lot of folks who have a loved one with Alzheimer's, there's this temptation to correct them. Mm. Like, so when they forget something or or to quiz them, do you remember this? Do you remember that? Um, uh, my grandmother would say something and she'd repeat it again in two minutes and you don't really feel like answering the same question over and over again. Yeah. Because she just asked you that a minute ago. Um So there's this temptation to reality orient or to correct your quiz. And I I would say that that's not helpful and you're not going to feel good about it either. Mm -hmm. The better approach um, that I've seen that really works is to it's a it's a rule from improvisational acting. You Mm -hmm. say yes. And 
oh. everything the person offers you. Okay. So, so the reality, so if I were talking about my Nana, let me give you an example. So mm-hmm. she had said to me, Lisa, I'm waiting for my mother. She's going to be here any minute. My job would not be to say, to negate her reality and say, mm-hmm. Nana, your mom died 30 years ago. Okay. Right. So I'm going to okay. correct her. And now this is going to be new information to her. And she's oh. going to live the, the tragedy of her mom's death in real time. Oh, Alice did that. Okay. Yes. So instead I can, yes. And I can agree to the reality she's just offered me and add to it. So I can say, okay, you want to have a cup of tea with me while we wait? And so people will think like, oh, but I'm lying. It's like, no, you're just again, it's yes. And you're agreeing to the reality and adding to it. So now we can be in a relationship, right? Because what what we're talking about doesn't really matter. The word she's not going to remember the details of your conversation in a few minutes or tomorrow, but she will remember how you made her feel. Mm. Right. So if I can keep my grandmother feeling loved, comforted, if I can keep her company, and we're chatting about stuff that she knows about and feels comfortable. Tell me about your mom. I heard she was a great cook. Oh, like, right. So now, yeah. now we're in relationship and, and that's what we want, you know, in the absence of a cure, we want to keep a relationship with our loved ones. And it's not going to be based on the old relationship where I'm her granddaughter. She doesn't know who I am. She knows right. I love her. She can feel that, but she doesn't know I'm Lisa Genova. So we got to dance in this new relationship and yes. And is a, is a great tool. It really works folks. It really does. Oh, I love that. I love that. So look for stories. Um, so Alice, I haven't watched that yet. I can't wait to watch it. Um, tell your story so that you can help others. Right. And then meet people where they are. I love that. And use that. Yes. And yes. And process. Cause that'll help you meet them where they are and don't try to, it's kind of, it can be combative to tell somebody, no, that didn't, they're dead now. Right. Well, even like, so like forget Alzheimer's for a moment. If you and I are chatting and you're trying to tell me something, I'm like, no, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> or that's not right. right. Um, or I don't want to, or I disagree. I mean, we are not going to connect. We're going to, no. if I'm just, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but like, yeah. we're like, we're going to have arms exactly. crossed and we're going to be shaking exactly. our head. But if I'm like, yeah. And how about this? Yeah. yeah. And also this, then we're like nodding and smiling and connecting. Yeah. 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 Well, I um, love that information. I appreciate those tips. I got a couple of closing questions for you. They're a little fun. Um, can we talk about what you're working on next? Yeah, thank you so much. I, I just finished writing the screen adaptation for one of my books called Inside the O'Briens. And it's okay. the first script I've ever written. So I'm super excited. And I, the same producer who uh, produced Still Alice, one of the producers, um, he's working on that with me. Oh, so good. we're going to hopefully wow. bring that to the screen. Okay. Um, and then my next novel is about a woman with bipolar disorder. Ooh. Now that's meaty. Okay, I'm excited. I'm going to take that books next. The O'Briens, I'll take that on. That sounds fun. What are you reading now? I just finished The Way of Integrity by Martha Beck, which uh-huh. was phenomenal. Um, fiction, I just read, I have to look over at my shelf. Um, I read The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki which is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Um, I've always got like two or three books going at once. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. 
I'm trying to well, think. That's who good. That's helpful. That's, yeah, that's good for now. Oh, yeah. I read um, Mercy Street by Jennifer Haig. That's Me- really good. Mercy, Mercy Street. Street. Yeah, okay. it's about a woman who works at an abortion clinic in Boston. If you were stuck on an island, what book would you take home with you? Would take with you? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, that's a tough one. And it's hard to say, you know, I've got so many friends who are writers. I don't want to leave anyone. Uh-oh, out. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, let me just, let me give you a few of my favorites. Um, so I love um, Dove Keepers by Alice Hoffman. All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. Okay. Um, that's a good one. Um, Untamed by Glennon Doyle is just phenomenal. Um, but I want a really big book. <laughs> I'm going to have to read it over and over and over again. Right, right. So why don't you go back to the classics then? See what's in the classics. Right. Uh, you know, I the classics. I think we need to update what classics Ooh. are. Yeah, I've got two kids in high school, and some <laughs> of the, I'm like, you know, why are we reading? I could get in trouble here, but why are we reading F. Scott Fitzgerald and and uh, Ernest? Hemingway and like, frankly, all of these old white dudes that aren't relevant. And I don't know, quite frankly, I think we can do a lot better. We have a lot lot of contemporary writers, women, people of color, diverse experience, much better. I mean, it will do much better for the generations growing up to, you know, develop their young minds into like, oh, this is the kind of writing that's possible and people of all different backgrounds can tell a story. I'm, I don't know. I'm all done with the classic. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Thank you so much. A new classic. Thank you so much for joining me today, joining us, our podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, the Lisa Genova. Yeah. Oh, Thank, you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Alexis. You're awesome. Thank you.